on that. You may be seated. Our sermon today is taken from 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to be looking together at verses 1 through 15. Verses 1 through 15. As we continue on now in this uh, history of the kings first of the United Kingdom of Judah and Israel under David and Solomon. And then obviously under the sons of Solomon and the kings of the north. We've reached a point obviously where David has died. Solomon's kingdom has been established. His enemies have been put to death for the most part. Doesn't mean that all political problems within the kingdom are, are done with. And that's something that we need to remember. Politics has ever been with us. Uh, and it certainly it was part of Solomon's kingdom. There were problems. There were divisions. There were schisms. It always happens in a fallen world. But uh, as we will see here, one of the great blessings that a leader can have is the blessing of wisdom. To be a strong leader is one thing, but one can be strong and at the same time foolish. Uh, we have seen many strong men rise up in various nations, and they have done great damage to their people because they had no true wisdom. But we are going to see that Solomon desired that wisdom, and we'll talk about how important it was. But before we turn our attention to the word of the Lord, let's go to the Lord who gave it, and let's ask for his blessing. Please join me. Sovereign Lord, today we pray that you would be the light of our minds. Help us to understand your word. Help me to divide it aright. I confess, Lord, that I can't do so without your power. I, Lord, am a man with feet of clay, and I won't even understand this word aright unless you give me that insight. I do pray, Lord, that you would uh, cause me not to say anything that goes against your word and to apply these things. Remind people, Lord, that now you are not dealing merely with heads but with hearts. It's your desire that we wouldn't simply learn things about uh, Solomon's kingdom and his life, but rather that we would apply these things to our own lives. You're speaking to us, Lord. Help us to remember that. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. First Kings chapter 3, and starting with verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house, and the house of the Lord, and the wall all around Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places, because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, you have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, 
but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There are probably 10,000 or more jokes that start with a castaway walking along a beach who discovers a lamp, and he picks it up, and of course, what happens? A genie pops out and says, what is your wish? Uh, But let us say that that actually happened to you one day, not that you were a castaway, but that you found the magic lamp, you rubbed it, and the genie popped out and said, what is your wish? What would you wish for at that moment in time? Now, I ask that knowing it's an interesting question, perhaps, uh, but for the vast majority of the world's inhabitants, it will forever remain a hypothetical question, and that includes you, I'm afraid. I'm sorry. There will be no genie. There will be no lamp. Even if you do find the lamp, when you rub it, you will find that uh, the brass simply becomes a little cleaner. You will not find the genie. No wishes are included in this offer. Sorry. Um, But for King Solomon... This wasn't a hypothetical question, was it? He was literally asked, what do you wish for? What do you want most in the world? Ask, and I will give it to you. And the person who was asking was the only person who could actually grant that request. Because, of course, it was the Lord who was saying to Solomon, ask of me what you will, and I will give it to you, Solomon. Now, before we get to the answer that that Solomon gave to God, when he was asked that question, let's examine the context, uh, where, where this was happening, what was going on, where we are in 1 Kings. Now, we know this. Solomon's kingdom had been firmly established. Those who had been trying to eliminate him from the kingship, to usurp that kingship, had been eliminated themselves. They had died. Benaiah had put them to death uh, at his command. And now Israel is growing. It's growing in size. It's growing in wealth. It's growing in reputation as well. In fact, it has grown so much that one of the great superpowers in the world at this point in time, Egypt, has sought to make a treaty with them. Israel is growing in its power and importance. Egypt at this point in time was weakening and therefore looking to make alliances with their neighbors. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, looks to Israel and he says, I want to make an alliance with these people on my border. So what does he do? He offers his daughter in marriage to Solomon. The uh, pharaoh in this case was uh, Susanes II or Shishak, either the, uh, the last pharaoh of the 21st or the first pharaoh of the 22nd dynasty. We aren't sure which one. 
But uh, we do know the way that they made alliances. The way that they made alliances wasn't simply by writing things down on paper and then signing on the dotted line. <laughs> Rather, the standard way to make a binding alliance in the ancient world was to marry off your daughter or to marry off your, your son to the foreign ruler. The idea being that you would be related at that point and you would be less likely to attack your children's grandfather rather than uh, simply getting along with them. But uh, this whole idea of marrying in order to produce alliance, that immediately raises a problem, doesn't it? It raises, or it should raise a problem for the biblically informed. The Lord, you know this, had forbidden his people to marry members of unbelieving nations within and without the land of Canaan and therefore become unequally yoked. Deuteronomy 7, 3, and 4 puts it this way, Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly, even if they were related uh, in, and, you know, by descent from Abraham and Noah and so on. They still should not marry if they were not servants of the Lord as well. And some have speculated, therefore, that if Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter, it must have been that she was converted. People have pointed out that the Egyptian gods are not mentioned among the list of false gods that Solomon's foreign wives will later draw him into worshiping. But it is still very unlikely that she was converted to worshiping Yahweh prior to this marriage to Solomon. And it is undoubtedly, no matter how we look at it, it is undoubtedly a warning sign of future problems. Why? Because, well, Solomon is already set on a specifically forbidden course of multiplying wives from both within and without the nation of Israel. The Lord had warned uh, the people of Israel, when they were asking for a king, he's going to multiply wives, he's going to overtax you, he's going to take your sons and daughters to serve him. And also, the kings had been warned, don't marry the wives of foreign nations, they will draw your heart away from me. Solomon, however, is not going to heed that. Now, one of the things that we'll see, and I'm going to have to remind you of this again, it's one thing to have wisdom and it's another thing to follow that wisdom that we have. A man may know what's right and yet choose not to do it. That's a very foolish thing ultimately. But we're going to see Solomon, the wisest man on earth, making foolish decisions against what he knows time and again. But this desire to, to marry foreign women isn't the only red flag we see in these verses. Uh, verse 3 starts out very positively, doesn't it? You know, take a look at uh, verse 3 uh, here of chapter 3. Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father David. And we can look at that and we can say, well, that's good. That's great as a matter of fact. We re remember from chapter 2 when David is dying, he gives this charge to Solomon. And he told him what was necessary for him and indeed for any king of Israel to do well he said to Solomon, didn't he, be strong, prove yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do 
and wherever you turn, that the Lord may fulfill his word, which he spoke, to concerning me, uh, spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, you shall not like a man on the throne of Israel. If you love the Lord your God, Solomon, not just being strong and courageous and so on and being a, a good leader in that sense, but keeping the commandments of the Lord, loving him with all your heart and with all your mind, with all your strength. If you do that, Solomon, you will be a good ruler. And so verse 3 seems to indicate to us, well, he loved the Lord his God. He loved him like David loved him, and therefore he's going to be a good ruler. But unfortunately, there are two clauses. I wish there weren't, but there are two clauses in verse 3, aren't there? And the second clause is not good news. After we learn that Solomon loved the Lord, it goes on to say, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. The only place in Israel where sacrifices were supposed to be made at this point was at the Tabernacle of Meeting. And the Tabernacle of Meeting was not on the high places. The Tabernacle of Meeting had been brought by David. The Ark of the Covenant and the tent and all of the accoutrements that had accompanied them in the wilderness had been brought to Jerusalem. It was in Jerusalem that they were supposed to be worshiping. Even before the temple was built, the sacrifices of the Lord were to be offered no place but at the Ark of the Covenant, and certainly not at the high places. The high places were not just places where the Lord was worshipped. Later on, we're going to see these high places, these bima, as they are in the Hebrew, becoming synonymous with false worship and so on. So Solomon, at this point, was keeping the first commandment in one sense, okay, in that he was worshipping the Lord God. He had only one God at this point in time, and that is the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh. But he is failing to keep the second commandment by not worshiping according to God's commandments. The Lord graciously overlooked this in the case of Solomon. But as Matthew Henry points out, he says, David kept to the ark and did not care for the high places. But Solomon, though in other things he walked in the statutes of his father, in this came short of him. He showed thereby a great zeal for sacrificing, but to obey would have been better. This was an irregularity. Though there was as yet no house built, there was a tent pitched in the name of the Lord, and the ark ought to have been the center of their unity. It was so by divine institution, for from it, rather from it, the high places separated. Yet, while they worshipped God only and in other things according to the rule, he graciously overlooked their weakness and accepted their services. And it is owned that Solomon loved the Lord, though he burnt incense in the high places. And let not men be more severe than God is. In other words, we ought not to judge Solomon uh, as severely as we could, especially because the Lord did not. Uh, he did eventually go to worship God in the right place. We note after he uh, makes his request, the next thing we le learn is that he's gone to Jerusalem and he is worshiping before the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, which is the only place where he should have been worshiping God. But already here, I want you to see this, brothers and sisters, there is a mixed worship going on in Israel. There is obedience and disobedience occurring within their midst. And unfortunately, we have to admit, and this is another reason why we shouldn't judge Solomon that harshly, uh, that has been the standard practice for God's people in every age. What do I mean by that? Well, 
Uh, unfortunately, there are three approaches, generally speaking. Even if we declare that the Lord our God, He is Lord and He alone, there are still three, generally, approaches to worship that have been found amongst God's people. I'm not saying there are three right ways. I'm just saying these are the three ways that God's people, unfortunately, have tended to worship God. The first is via the regulative principle of worship. What is the regulative principle of worship? Well, the regulative principle of worship states that we should worship God only according to God's instructions in His Word. So, if when it comes to the worship of God, we are determining how God is to be worshipped, we should ask the question, how does God tell us to be worshipped? He wants to be worshipped. And what do we see in His Word? How does He show us He wants to be worshipped in the New Testament era? And so we see His prescriptions, what He tells us to do, and His descriptions of the way worship is supposed to work, and then we follow them. If it's not in his word, if he doesn't command it, we don't do it. All right, that's the regulative principle of worship. That's actually the only way that worship should function. We should only worship God according to his commandments. End of story. But there are two other approaches to worship that have prevailed amongst the church. The second is the normative principle of worship. The normative principle of worship says that worship should be according to God's instructions and it can include anything he hasn't specifically forbidden. So, for instance, if something appeals to me and I can't find it uh, described as an abomination within God's word and told specifically that I shouldn't do it, I can include it. That has been very prevalent in the history of God's people as well. But we would say, well, if God didn't tell us to do it, then we shouldn't be doing it. But nonetheless, the normative principle has prevailed. But unfortunately, that's not the only way that, that people have worshipped. The third, and I would say today, unfortunately, this is the most prevalent way of worshipping God, has been described rightly, I think, as the affectional principle of worship. What is the affectional principle of worship? The affectional principle of worship is, if I like it, I'm doing it. If I don't like it, I'm not doing it. That's it. That's all there is to it. It doesn't matter whether it's commanded or forbidden. The real question is, do I want to do it? Do I like it? And if I don't like it, I'm not doing it. Now, that unfortunately we're going to see is where worship always tends to decline. In the book of 1 of, uh, Kings, we're going to see people going from following God's commandments under David all the way to basically doing whatever they want to in the worship of God by the end of 1 Kings. Uh, but we've seen in history God's people declining that way again and again. Keep this in mind, brothers and sisters. Reformation is always possible when it comes to the worship of God, and it should be something that we're always seeking. Uh, <laughs> Reformation, simply put, is when you move from affectional to regulative. When you move from I like it to God likes it. Uh, honestly, that should be the way. And, and you know, I know a lot of people are going to give you grief. They're going to say to you, well, I, I don't believe that. I don't want to worship God that way. I don't want to worship him strictly according to the instructions that we see in Scripture. That would be boring. And you say, well, okay then. Okay. You worship God your way, and I'll worship him his. And, you know, let it be at that. Nobody gets that joke, do they? It's, um, actually, it's a, a witticism, but, well, you know, you worship God your way, I'll worship him his, and, and so on. All right, moving on. Uh, <laughs> it's like when I said to my, my, uh, my, my class a long time ago, we're going to need a bigger boat, and they looked at me with these saucer eyes. Why do we need a boat? We're in school. 
Okay. Even at the beginning of this book, though, that is 1 Kings, not Jaws, uh, we come to terms with the fact that Solomon is both a sinner and a saint. And that's something that we need to remember throughout the entire Bible. Whenever we're reading about the so-called heroes of the Bible, whether it's Solomon or even David, his father, or Joseph, or anybody else, we need to remember that these are men, that they are men at best. And uh, unfortunately, they all, every single one of them, struggled with sin. And sometimes we have to confess those struggles were not successful. They went in the wrong direction. Um, Philip Reichen has said, rightly, I think, we face the same struggle. In the famous words of Martin Luther, each of us is simul justus et peccator, at the same time both righteous and a sinner. Through faith in Jesus Christ and on the basis of his perfect life and atoning death, we are perfectly righteous in the sight of God. Yet for as long as we live in this sinful world, we will continue to struggle with remaining sin. This means that the warning signs of our own tragic downfall are present right in our own hearts. It's you and me, brothers and sisters. We all have the seeds of every single sin in our own hearts. And it's only the grace of God that determines whether or not we will fall prey to those particular sins. But regardless of the sinful nature, God still met with him after his sacrifice at Gibeon. And we need to note this. It was not because of the size of the sacrifice. It wasn't because he, he, he you know, at 999 uh, oxen, uh, sacrifice to the Lord, the Lord wouldn't have met with him, but he passed that. He got to 1,000, and so he wins an audience with the Lord. That's not the way it works. Why did the Lord meet with Solomon? The Lord met with Solomon because of his covenant, because of his faithfulness, because of his love to David and Solomon's forefathers, and therefore he met with Solomon. And because Solomon, at this point in time, is still, to a certain extent, a man after God's own heart, so God meets with him in a dream. And when we say that he met with him in a dream, we need to remember this isn't, this isn't a delusion. Uh, it's not simply that, that Solomon imagined that God met with him. Rather, God actually did meet with him. This is one of the ways that the Lord frequently revealed himself to his servants, frequently interacted with them. You remember that the Lord had covenanted with Abraham after he had put Abraham into a deep sleep, he appeared to him. And he made that great covenant with him. And so here we see God appearing to Abraham in his dream and saying, what shall I give you? What shall I give you? Now Solomon's answer is very wise already. So we can see that the Lord had already built this man with a great degree of, of wisdom. And in fact, looking at chapters 1 and 2, we know that Solomon was no dummy. But... The answer that Solomon gives shows that he had the great seed of wisdom within him already. One, and, the, and the, of course, the root of all wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But also, one of the, the greatest parts of wisdom is simply to know how much you don't know. To understand how foreshortened your understanding is. To understand that your understanding is finite rather than infinite. That it is not comprehensive that we may apprehend certain things, but we'll never be able to get our hands around them perfectly. That's one of the, the great things that helps us in understanding doctrines within the word. There are many doctrines within the word that we are told about and we can apprehend. I'll give you an example of one, the Trinity, for instance. The God is, is three persons in one being, okay? There is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. 
And many people will say, well, yes, I understand that. I can make an analogy. There's the uh, four-leaf clover, for instance, or the, uh, I'm sorry, the shamrock, the, the, the three-leaf clover, uh, or the egg, or water, or so on. You know, eventually, they end up always making analogies for modalism. Uh, or non-Trinitarian theology. That's modalism, Patrick, if you are familiar with Lutheran <laughs> satire. Uh, it's not actually a good analogy. What's a good analogy for the Trinity? There isn't one. Why? Because we can't describe the great immaterial, incorporate, spiritual God in the way that he actually exists using merely material definitions. Our, our brains cannot comprehend the Trinity perfectly, but we can apprehend it. We can understand the truths of it and accept them. Solomon understands that his understanding will be limited to a certain extent, and that's why he needs God's help so very much. What does he call himself? He calls himself a little what? A little child, because a child is inexperienced. A child is ignorant. A child is dependent upon others to teach them, even if the child doesn't think so. That's nonetheless the case. To give the, uh, the, the child the help that they need to grow wise, to grow up, and so on, is something that parents exist for. And so he is saying, I need instruction from outside of me because I don't know the way. I don't know my right from my left. I don't know how to come in or go out. A little child, you know, still needs permission to go outside. Is it safe? Can I go out now? And the parent will say yes or no. He knows whether or not he is going to do well will depend upon the kind of instruction, the insight he gets. He's a mortal man facing an awesome task. He says, I, I have this people that I have to rule. They're, they're virtually limitless, numberless. And so I need your help. I need wisdom, God. And wisdom, please note this, is much more than simply intelligence. Wisdom is much more than knowledge. Now, wisdom will require a certain amount of knowledge. You can't be completely ignorant and be wise at the same time. But wisdom is much more than intelligence. I tell you this, I have met many people who are very educated, but at the same time, incredibly foolish. Very foolish. I have read books written by men who have made it to the New York Times bestseller list. They are the heads or chairs of departments in various places. And I read breathtaking foolishness and ignorance about the very nature of the universe, the nature of mankind, what is right and wrong, how we will determine things, and so on. So intelligence and education do not equal wisdom. Wisdom, we can come up with many different de uh, definitions. I'm going to try to give you some insights as we go through First Kings about what wisdom is because we're going to encounter the wisdom of Solomon. And of course, the great book that Solomon wrote about the nature of wisdom is... No, that's about the nature of life. Proverbs. Proverbs is the great book of uh, wisdom. But... To a certain extent, wisdom is the ability to know the difference between right or wrong and make the right choice based upon the fear and knowledge of the Lord. And that's critically important because the knowledge of the Lord is right knowledge. The Lord understands all things. The Lord perceives all things. The Lord does know what's right and the Lord knows what's wrong. In fact, he, he defines right and he defines wrong. 
And therefore, if we can understand things from God's perspective and apply that in our lives to to everyday decisions, then we are acting wisely. So what Solomon actually asks for, it's interesting, in the Hebrew, he asks for an understanding mind, uh, or literally, uh, it's, it's difficult to put it into English, he asks for a listening heart, a heart that shema, you know, that listens. Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, is the beginning of, of the, the Shema as we find it in Deuteronomy. But um, that's what he's asking for. Give me a hearing heart, one that obeys, one that is wise, because to hear is to obey if you're wise. If we hear the word of the Lord, then we'll obey the word of the Lord. Um, and the word, note this, and this is very important in understanding the Hebrew perspective on wisdom. When we hear the word heart, for most people, okay, in the, uh, well, if you're a materialist, you think of the organ that pumps blood throughout your body. That's not what the Bible means. Although it understands if you stab somebody in the heart, they die. Uh, but when the Bible speaks of the heart, the Bible is speaking of the seat not only of emotions, okay, So when you say, I love somebody, you're saying it from the heart. But it's also the seat of the intellect as well. It's where you do your cogitating, where you do your thinking, where you do your reflection and introspection. That occurs in the heart. So it doesn't refer to merely the brain. It certainly doesn't refer merely to the organ or even just to the emotions the way it does in in popular songwriting. Rather, it refers to the whole person. When we're speaking about the heart of a person, we're speaking about their innermost being, their intellect, their affections, their their will, what they want to do. And what Solomon is saying is inform my heart, teach me so that I would discern and do your will. That's wisdom. A wise man, a wise woman, a wise child is somebody who understands the will of God and then does the will of God. And that's of critical importance because Jesus made that that distinction, didn't he? He said that to be wise or to do his, uh, to to really be somebody who's building their, their household on a firm foundation, a foundation of solid rock, was not merely to hear his word, but to hear his word and to do his word. And Solomon says, Lord, let me know your word, let me understand your word. Let me do your word. Let me hear you and obey you. And the Lord is pleased with his request. He is so pleased, in fact, that what does he do? He promises Solomon, I'm going to give you the things you didn't ask for. You asked me for wisdom. You asked me for the best thing of all. And because this is such a good request and it'll go so well, I'm also going to give you riches. I'm going to give you honor. I'm going to give you length of days. All of these things will come with that wisdom. But there's a condition to it, isn't there? If you, he says, will walk according to the knowledge of the Lord. I'm going to give you wisdom. But Solomon, this is of critical importance. You have to act according to the wisdom that I've given you. You have to walk according to my commandments, according to my instructions. It's not merely that I want you to govern the people and do that. I want you to govern yourself according to my word. That's much more difficult, isn't it? I mean, parents... It's easier to tell a child what to do than to do it ourselves, isn't it? I mean, and what's the child really looking at? Are you going to do what you said? 
you're telling me not to smoke the cancer sticks. Are you smoking the cancer sticks? Are you going to church? Are you praying? Are you doing your work? Are you, you know, all of these questions. They look at us to see, are we actually doing what we're telling them to do? And the Lord certainly is going to be looking at Solomon to see, are you doing what you know is right? Now, what about us? I asked that question, you remember, at the beginning. What, what would we ask for if we were given that wish? It's interesting. I, 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 you know, I said to myself, at some point, there must have been a poll done. If this question was asked, what would you wish for? What did people say? What, what would modern Americans say if they were asked that question? What would you wish for if you were given three wishes? Interestingly enough, I found that the place where they asked this again and again and again, and I didn't expect this, is medical school. They, they, uh, they poll on a regular basis medical students uh, as to what their wishes would be. And so the most, um, the most recent uh, poll was done uh, in the Medical Student Research Journal in 2017. And they asked them what they would ask for. And the answers were interesting. 40% uh, of the students, and, and the, the poll takers acknowledge this, there's what they call the halo effect. When you're asking the question hypothetically, people know, okay, you're not really the genie. You're not really going to give me what I want. So I want to give you an answer that I know I should be giving you. All right? So 40% of the people who were asked this question gave altruistic answers. In other words, and you know what the number one one was? World peace. They all want world peace. It was the Miss America answer given by medical student. I want world peace and a billion dollars. Yeah, anyway, the, uh, so 40% of the students said something along the lines of, of world peace, an end to world hunger, or something like that. 36% of the students answered along the lines of achievement. They wanted to be top surgeons. They wanted to be first in their field. They wanted to be honored and respected by everybody around them, that kind of thing. And 34% went for the old favorite. What was it? Money. I want to be filthy rich. Okay? Um, so... And then they gave the breakdown. Male medical students had significantly more wishes related to power, money, and self-esteem than the female ones. They, there was more altruism amongst the, the women. And then they broke it down. Surgeons and, and so on. Their, their answers were interestingly different according to their field and so on. I'm not going to impugn members of the medical profession by telling you what their, how their answers broke down. But nonetheless, I thought it was interesting that virtually none of them asked for what Solomon asked for. None of them said, I want to be truly wise. And very few said something along those lines. Very few of them, I would imagine, in fact, I didn't even break it down according to that. Very few of them said, I, I want the fear of the Lord. But brothers and sisters, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Now, I, I need to tell you this, certain things about, about those answers. The people that I know, and, and many people might say, well, you know, yeah, um, I, I, I think, I, I'm just going to go out on a limb here. I think if I was granted the billion dollars for becoming the most successful, happy, uh, and um, high-achieving person who's ever lived on the face of the planet, uh, that I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't need that much wisdom. I would still, I'd still do pretty well. 
Well, I have to tell you, it's been my experience, and I've been around people with lots of money. I've been around people who are the leaders in their particular fields, who had achieved the, the, the greatest things that people uh, in that particular profession have wanted to achieve. And yet I've found some desperately unhappy people, people who've messed up their lives again and again and again. The people that I've met who have done best in, in truth, in terms of their family, their happiness, their, uh, their well-being, and the well-being of those around them, were the wise ones. The people who really were glorifying God and enjoying Him forever, who had the fear of the Lord at the center of their hearts. The, the people that I've met, regardless of, of what they accomplished in, in terms of their skills, athletic or otherwise, who were messing up their lives and the lives of people around them, were the people without wisdom. They usually put everything else, incidentally, first. They, they did. They lived for money or sex or power or strength or achievement or self-esteem. Now, we might say, well, well what about those people who said, uh, I'll help people, those people who, who didn't just say, I want world peace because they knew other people were listening. What about the people who really wanted world peace? The people who, if you ask them, what do you want most of all? I want to help people. Please understand this. Without wisdom... You can't, and you won't, even if that's your desire to help people. That's why secular governments are so often constantly making life into a dystopian nightmare by trying to help people. I know, I'll take money away from the productive person over here, and I'll give it to the non-productive person over there. That'll fix everything. Wait a minute. Why are you working less, and why aren't you working at all? Who could have expected that to happen? Well, it's called human nature. It's anthropology. But people are constantly doing that. And then they're like, okay, okay, so we'll, we'll keep, we'll move, we'll change, don't, you know, and, but not acting according to God's word. Human principles do not lead to happiness, brothers and sisters. Mere achievement, wealth, and so on. I was reminded recently, one of my, my favorite comedians for, uh, for quite some time, a, an Oscar winner, a, a man of tremendous talent, uh, omnicompetent in some performative roles and so on, Robin Williams. 2014, the reason I was reminded of this was the anniversary of his suicide. He accomplished everything really a comedian can accomplish. And yet he was hollow inside. He didn't have the fear of the Lord. He didn't have the love of the Lord in his heart. What does Solomon say? He writes this in Proverbs 3.13. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happier are all those who retain her. And so, brethren, my advice to you is before you seek money and accomplishment and power and athletic achievement or any of those things, seek first wisdom, and you will find that through the fear of the Lord. And only in him will you find wisdom. Today, if you would, I'm going to give you an assignment. I know I don't often give homework assignments. and Unfortunately, I can't check, and I won't be grading you, but, uh, unless you really want me to. Um, 
But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul gives an extended dissertation on the difference between human wisdom and the wisdom that's to be found in Christ. Because Christ is the source of wisdom. He is really, what do we call him? He's the word, the logos. He is wisdom itself personified. True wisdom. If we seek after him, and if we hear his voice and we obey him, we will find wisdom. But that's something that has to begin with the Lord doing that work of changing us. A wise heart is a regenerate heart. A heart that knows the Lord, that loves the Lord, that fears the Lord, that seeks the Lord, that listens to the Lord. We need to be a listening people who love Christ and who follow after him. So seek first the kingdom of God and all the things that you need will be added to you. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, we pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts of wisdom as well. We know that it's vain to seek after all the things that this world can give us, all the things that we can buy in Vanity Fair without having wisdom. I pray, Lord, that you would make us people who truly are seeking after the wisdom that comes from knowing you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us not merely to hear, but to obey your word and to do so when it's hard, when it goes against what the world wants us to do. Help us, O oh Lord, to be a people who are also distributing wisdom far and wide. Let it not be in my opinion, but thus saith the Lord that animates the way that we speak to other people.